This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right, welcome to UC Santa Barbara's Innovator Stories. I'm John Greathouse. You could follow me on Twitter, at John Greathouse. We have tonight Josh Cobb, who is president of the Americas for Media.net. After 15 years of running partner management at Yahoo!, where he managed billions of dollars of annual revenue, Josh recently took the reins of MediaNet's America's operations. They are the number two advertising technology company in the world. What's number one? Who is their nemesis? Google. Ooh, evil Google. Um, <laughs> Media, Media.net's uh, sale to a private Chinese consortium, a public Chinese consortium back in 2016, was the third largest ad tech deal ever, um, almost approaching a billion dollars. In his role at Media.net, Josh oversees 600 people across seven global offices that service more than 500,000 websites, many of which you've heard of, including the New York Times, Ford, Forbes, WebMD, CNN, Fox News, many, many of the top websites um, are clients of media.net. So in addition to Josh's stellar career um, at large companies, he is a consummate serial entrepreneur. He lost it all twice, and he got it all back three times. And you're going to hear what I mean by that, like how his, the ups and downs of his career are pretty, uh, pretty amazing, very engaging. He went from editing videos on his mom's VCR um, uh, tape recorder at home to creating and operating a successful big-budget Hollywood studio um, in which he ended up producing and directing two major motion pictures. He has an extremely demanding travel schedule, and if anything, it's probably going to become even more demanding um, with his um, uh, offices all over the world. Uh, but he's always made his number one priority his family, and he's been rewarded for making his family his number one priority with a uh, long-term relationship with his beautiful wife, who's here with us today, as well as his uh, children, 12 and 6, who still are happy to see him when he comes through the door at night, which is a great thing as a, as a parent. Let's welcome Josh to our stage. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Josh is an amazing person, and you're going to, I think, when you walk out of here um, after today's talk, you're, you're going to agree with me. So Josh um, was kind enough to speak in a class of mine many years ago. He walks into the classroom, and he says, I think I've been here before. And we all have that kind of vague deja vu feeling sometimes. But Josh doesn't stop there. Josh looks up, and he goes, I've definitely been here. I remember that ceiling tile was broken on that lower right corner. And I looked at him thinking he was kidding. Like, oh, he's obviously just kidding, right? He wasn't kidding. He did remember that tile. And what's even more amazing is you were only at UC Santa Barbara for two months. Maybe. So you get into UC Santa Barbara, (laughs) and your career comes to an abrupt halt. Yeah, that's right. And to make matters worse, your mom worked at UCSB in the admissions office for the graduate school. She did. So talk to me about how wonderful it was to drive home that night and tell them the good news. Um, you know, it's a, it's a time in my life I'll never forget. And I just, th- I know you guys are in school and so you have to be here, but thanks for coming out tonight and, <laughs> uh, not using like the mudslide excuse to not be here or whatever. Um, it's great to see all of you here and, and thank you for taking the time. Um, 
It's a moment in, in my life, like all of us have moments in our life we'll never forget. I had a 1969 VW Bug, and um, I remember driving you know, down the freeway to the 101, um, and I, I distinctly remember looking in my rearview mirror and seeing UCSB get smaller and smaller, oh. and I knew what was ahead of me was City College. And um, you know, I basically blew, I felt at the time that I blew up my whole life right. and mostly embarrassed my family. Right. right. That was what I was most worried about. Right. Yeah. Well, obviously, you, you redeemed yourself over, many times over. Um, there's many reasons why I wanted you to um, and, you know, share your insights with my students. One of them is you're such a humble guy. I mean, you really are extremely successful, obviously, incredibly intelligent. And I know you said one time that you wake up dazed and confused every day. Uh, but that by working hard consistently, you've been able to win the day. How does that translate to, um, to someone that's sitting in a seat today in this classroom in 2018? You know, our parents want to protect us from some of the realities that are hard about living. And um, life is just being, you know, I think we all figured this out by now, but maybe not. Uh, it took me a long time to figure it out, that life is really, really hard. It's really difficult. It's not easy. And once you recognize that and you're committed to <clears throat> living in, a, in an environment that's difficult, uh, you start building a lot of capability to deal with those difficulties. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's rush hour traffic, which sounds trivial, um, or it's something much more significant in your life that's difficult, um, th- that's, I think, the first step is having the realization that this is not going to be easy and you're the only one really that can get yourself through it at the end of the day. Um, and I, I didn't grow up with a lot of... Uh, resources in my life, more than the average maybe, but not a lot. Um, and I knew from the very beginning that no one was going to pay my bills and right, right. give me anything. I got a typewriter for graduation from high school, and, and uh, which is more than some children get, by the way. But uh, you know, it was uh, it was a matter of me carving out what I was going to become and what my life was going to be. Well, it's good that you you came to that realization relatively young. Um, some people never get there. I think most of the students in this class, um, just by the fact that they select a class like this, have probably figured that out, and they're on their, their road. But, but I, I always tell my students, look, you know, you're not a victim. Take control. Don't let life take control of you. You take control of life. You know, all right. the cliches I can think of. But yep. trying to get them to, to really have that mindset of, it's on me. I've, I've got to do this. Yep. So I may not have it right, but I think your first business was washing airplanes. It was. How yeah. old were you, and how did you end up washing airplanes? How did you get by the FAA? <laughs> you could get on a tarmac. So I was 15. 15. And uh, I was here in Santa Barbara. And um, a, friend of mine, uh, a friend of mine's father was a mechanical engineer and owned a small mechanical engineering business in Santa Barbara. It's now where the AHA headquarters are on De La Vina and Anna Pramu, if you ever drive by there. And... Um, his dad would go all over California and do government contracts, so he needed a plane to get around quickly. Mm-hmm. So he bought for his business, he bought a plane. And then I was really excited about flying. And so when we grew up in Santa Barbara together, sometimes we would be able to go on like family trips and stuff that he, I would be able to ride along with his dad. Mm-hmm. And um, one day his dad told his son to wash his plane, and my friend said, will you help me with that? And I was like, absolutely. Any excuse to be out by airplanes, I was right. like, let's do it. So we washed it and we waxed it. And then he gave us each $100. And I was like, oh my gosh. Like that was 1985. That was a lot of money yeah. for me. You know, I was a sophomore in high school. And uh, so I was like, well, there's probably other people that have dirty planes. So um, <laughs> I found out, 
so I, I found out who ran the, the airport authority at the time uh, over by where the elephant bar used to be. It's now called High Sierra off yep, of Hollister. Yeah, yeah. So I wandered into somebody's office. I was young enough that they, it was unusual enough for a 15-year-old to come in the office that they actually just sent me into the, the guy who made the decision. And I think he was just like a little surprised that I wanted to start a business at the airport. And he, he listed all the things that he would normally have to do for me to do that. And then he said, but it's okay. <laughs> just don't break anything or you know he basically right. let me on without pr- proper right. permits so i mean that's that's <laughs> a great story because you know you, you would look at that and think well there's no way i can i mean the faa and all the rules and the yeah. barbed wire right. and all the craziness right. um, and it is different now with it's pre-9-11 it's different yeah. but yeah. even then it was a high security area mm-hmm. so to think that you could just walk up to somebody and say hey can i wash some planes what do you think and, and the attitude i think most entrepreneurs have is what does it hurt to ask like the mm-hmm. worst thing is he just says, get out of your kid, and then you go do something else. Right. Or you do it at night when no one's watching. Well, I didn't want to say that. I'm just kidding. I didn't want to say that. Off the fence. Um, no, but I think yeah. that mentality is really important right. to, um, if, you, if you think you're an entrepreneur, those are the kind of things you do naturally. Yeah. If you're sort of intimidated by that, then, yeah. then maybe that's not your gig. So you, I mentioned in your introduction, you... you, you um, Can I just say one more thing? No, you're done. <laughs> These boundaries, like fences and stuff, or the or bouncers at a nightclub, um, the red velvet rope, they're all artificially created constructs that have to do with power and control. That that's just what they are, and and that's okay. It's we need boundaries, and we should have fences and stuff like that. Um, but one of the things I learned with that airport thing is once you're on the airport, right. no, everyone you're thinks in. you have full permission and no one ever asks you why you're walking around the airport because right. they assume that you did some huge list of things to get across that boundary. So I watched a lot of planes and no one ever said anything to me. Right. So once you're on the inside. Yeah, or the perception. And that's, and that's an interesting theme that we'll pick up when you got your yeah. job as an editor because yeah. it's the same sort of thing. Yeah. So you produced two films. And I, I'm surprised that you produced No Exit before anyone else. That's like a classic play. I would have thought so. Yeah. Jean-Paul Sartre, existentialist playwright, France, uh, wrote a lot. Wrote No Exit uh, right in post-war France, right after in the 40s. Um, But I'm more interested in the the pumpkin movie you made. So you bought a (laughs) – you you mowed lawns. You bought this – I'm sure it was a a nice camera for its time. Mm -hmm. And you edited that um, on your mom's VHS player. And the reason I bring that up is that that experience – I mean, that could have been a dead end, right? You could have done it for two days and said, oh, forget it, I'm not into that. That was not fun. But, but it wasn't. It sparked a real interest in you. And, in fact, it caused you to go down to uh, Cox Communications, is our local cable um, provider here in Santa Barbara. Right. And you went to an affiliate of theirs called Quantum Video at age 17. Mm-hmm. I'm just setting the stage, and I want you to mm-hmm. tell the rest of the story. You walk in. This guy is not that nice to you, makes you wait forever. When he finally interviews you, he says, look, there's 24 people in front of you that want to work for free, too. Why should I hire you? Mm-hmm. What did you do? Yeah, he said, add your name to the list. Oh, okay. And, uh, but that's what he was basically, you could have said the same thing. Right. So, and they were all typed up, and then I hand wrote mine. <laughs> and it was on a cubicle, so there was nothing hard behind the paper. So it looked like I was a kindergartner writing my name out. Like, it was the worst. You should have written it at the top. I should have written it at the top. I should have just jumped the line. Um, <laughs> You're right, because who would have known? The, uh, <laughs> I wrote my name, and I walked outside, and I had built up a lot of expectation that by offering my services for free, I would 100% be able to work there um, for free. And uh, so I was really upset you know, about it. And I walked outside, and uh, uh, it's a one-story building, and uh, 
there were all the people that worked there had their cars parked right up against the front of the building. And my VW was there also. And, uh, and uh, it was a hot summer day. It was right after my junior year in high school. So this was like June of 87, I think it was. And um, the cars look, in the middle of the day, cars look dirty. At sunset, they look beautiful, even if you didn't clean your car. But when it's high noon, and so I saw all these like, cars that needed washing. And so I just had this idea, like, maybe I could be valuable to like, wash all their cars. Like, I could get some credit for that. And so I walked back in, and I asked the GM, could I do that? He, you know, he, he had a lot of weird body language about why I was asking him to wash people's cars. <laughs> but he gave me a bucket and soap, and I think he was a little bit sadistic mm-hmm. of him. Yeah. And um, so anyway, I washed all these cars. And of course, you think he was thinking, I just want to see what this kid does? I think so. Yeah. I think so, yeah. And I think he liked being in power yeah. and like, telling yeah. me no, you know, like on the list and everything. Anyway, I washed a bunch of cars. Employees kept coming out. It was a little bit weird, right? Because, like, do you have permission to wash somebody's car? Or do you need that or whatever? Anyway. Um, and then I asked them if I could wash the windows. And they had this, these big plate glass windows on the front. And they were dirty. And I took a squeegee and I washed that. <clears throat> and that was on the outside. And this is like three or four hours later. I, said, I walked back in. And I said, you know, the window, I cleaned the outside. But then I noticed it's dirty on the inside. This is you getting on the inside. It is, yeah. And I said, can I wash the inside of the windows? And he said, sure, yeah. He didn't, he didn't even think about it, right? So, <laughs> so I, I get inside. So I'm in the machine room, which is like a giant version of what's going on in that room right now. And I'm in the machine room. It's one inch reel-to-reel. They're editing like Nexus hair care products, Kentucky Fried Chicken commercials and stuff are going on. There's all these edit rooms. So just to stop for a second, so just to be clear... Even though this was in Santa Barbara, this was a top-end editing facility. They weren't yeah, yeah. editing car commercials no, no, no. for the local dealership. They were editing like national... Broad, broadcast stuff. Yeah. yeah, broadcast quality commercials. That's right. That age, ad agencies coming in and stuff. Right. Yeah, it was, it was rolling right then. Yeah. Anyway, I was washing the windows, and so then I was inside. So then I started vacuuming. They had a little break room, so I was doing the dishes. I was doing the dishes in the back. I, was, I didn't know how to vacuum. I was like vacuuming and then missing everything and like vacuuming again. And then... Um, organizing, you know, and they had people that did this, by the way, and those people would come in at night and do the same thing, but uh, that wasn't the point. The point was that I was in the environment and being accepted at some level, and then the big, the big thing that happened was the chief number one editor there at Quantum was a functioning alcoholic that loved to drink 40-ounce Mickeys and Colt 45. At work. At work. Like, he'd have, like, a huge ad agency behind him, and he'd be, like, editing a McDonald's commercial, and he's out of his mind. And uh, he came out of uh, Cal Arts with Tim Burton. And uh, so I'm... What I'm, a great mentor for a 17-year-old, by It was way. an amazing mentor, and, and I was, like, his, his... I was, like, his alcohol mule. So he'd go find it somewhere and bring it. And uh, he had this huge beard, and he was, like, a giant teddy bear. He was, like... He was like seven feet tall, it seemed like to me, and like 400 pounds. And, and he was like incredibly talented, like amazing. He, made, he did like amazing editing decisions, not just with television commercials, but other things. And uh, one night after like a week of me helping him out with so his... You just kept showing up. You just, yeah, to be clear, this is all on the same day. <laughs> you just kept showing up. I did, yeah. And uh, one day he asked, he, he, he's like coming down the hallway and it's like midnight and he's tipsy and he's like, He's like, hey, little man. And I'm, I'm 6'3". And he's like, hey, little man. He's like, what, what do you do here? Like, why are you even here? Like, he's like, he's looking at his watch, and it's midnight. And, <laughs> and uh, I told him I was there. And he loved that what so much. What did you much. say? I said, I'm here because 
I think editing is like the thing that I want to do in my life. I want to do post-production. In my, I said post. That's what everybody says. You say post. I said, I want to do post. And I think it's the way to create beautiful thing, beautiful output. And it's you also how all to his buttons learn to be a director. All the, all the things that I knew that we were both, we both had in common. Right, right, right. And, uh, but it anyway, was authentic. It was genuine. It was like, totally yeah, authentic. Yeah. It was why I was washing windows and vacuuming. Right. And uh, right. so he, at that, from that moment on, he took me out of the machine room and put me next to him at the, con- at the control, like where we were doing all the editing and the Grass Valley switch and everything, and started teaching me how to do the, the craft of post-production. Right, right. Yeah. We talk a lot in this um, series about mentors, mm-hmm. and we joke about this gentleman. I'm sure he's a wonderful guy. Um, but he was your mentor. And, he was, you know, yeah. For all his flaws and yeah. he, he, through his alcoholic haze, he saw that you really wanted to, to learn this craft, yeah. and he was willing to set you down as a 17-year-old kid and teach you things that would have cost you a fortune to learn if you had gone to some kind of school or something. That's right. Yeah. That's so right. Mentors come from right. unusual places sometimes. Mm-hmm. That's right. So I oh, love how you got in. So you got into the inside. You were working there. Um, I'm going to jump to a little out of sequence chronologically, but you and I have something in common. Um, we both managed bands. Yeah. But your band actually played a gig here. Many, what was many. What, many gigs. <laughs> yeah. what, and you shot a music video here. Uh-huh. Upstairs, yeah. So what, what was the apex, apex of their career? Like what? Uh, they released an album called Retro Demon 263. And, um, everyone and has that, right? Everyone's got that. Everyone it's, knows that. That's, and the band's Creature Feature? The band was called Creature Feature. It's now called uh, Nagahide. But, uh, um, yep. Yeah. And I got credit on the... I got credit on the album as parental supervision. <laughs> That's frightening. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, managing bands are fun. Getting in the music industry is fun. Not a path to riches for most people. Um, so then, so again, a little bit out of chronological order. But then you were you you loved editing. You knew that was going to be in your future, probably in some mm-hmm. form, some fashion. You knew flying was going to be in your future in some form or some fashion. Yep. And this is called growing up. Like this, a lot of things I'm doing now. That now that I have discretion as to where I spend my time, were things I thought I wanted to do when I was younger, but I just didn't have the time or money or, or inclination to do it. And I've seen that in your career. That's right. Um, so you started this thing called Omni Distribution. You spent it like a year in Taiwan and Tennessee or Kentucky. Kentucky. Lexington, Kentucky. Sorry, I get those two confused. Right. Um, <laughs> and then you came back from Taiwan broke. I did. Lived yep. with your mom, slept mm-hmm. in the garage. She had mm-hmm. the audacity to charge you rent. My mother charged me. My mother is awesome. And I love my mom. I'm going to look right at the camera. And, uh, and my mother told me probably most of my high school, she said, when you turn 18, uh, I'm not paying the bills. Right, so, right. And you owe me $100 a month rent if you're going to stay in the garage. Ship because if the garage had like a bed, and half the garage had been sort of remodeled. And um, when, I, when we had our, my 18th birthday party, we had like a dinner with friends and family. My mom paid the bill. And as she signed the check, she said, this is it. And she looked, at, she looked at me and she goes, this is it. She signed the thing. And the next morning, I knew she wanted rent. So I brought $100 cash to her um, in the main house um, and paid, paid rent. For, so I was paying rent to my mom. So I, I want to yeah. go from that situation, yeah. right? That's well, difficult. So you start looking through the, the want ads, which today would be kind of like Craigslist or something. Yeah. And you find a job for minimum wage in an industry that you sort of were attracted to. What, what, what was that job, and then what, where did it lead you? Yeah, it was a location scout. So this is when... This um, is before Google Earth. This is, before, this is way before <laughs> Google Now people Earth. can do it on their phone. But. Yeah, although the satellites that Google uses for Google Earth are called the keyhole satellites, and those were actually flying for oh, okay. the NSA at the time. Um, but, yeah, so I got this job. It was actually 
interestingly less, it was illegal, it was less than minimum wage. So it was $1,000 a month for 160 hours of work, and at the time that was below minimum wage, and then she, the woman who did this pretended that she was, like I was an independent non-employee or whatever, so, but I needed a job and a car. Right. So I took the bus, you know, from Santa Barbara down, like, West Side Santa Barbara to Montecito was where the job was, so I had to take the bus for a while. But I was a location scout. So let's scout. just be clear. He's a location scout, which means he needs to go places to find locations. He has no vehicle. Yeah. Right. But you still took the job. I did. She never asked me if I had a car when we took the interview. So I, like, so I rode the bus, and then she's like, you know, she hands me assignments. So the way it worked back in the day is basically it all came out of Los Angeles. So they would come up here and do car commercials because it's beautiful in Santa Barbara to do that, like through the wine country and up the coast and stuff. And... They would say, we need exactly the, this angle. There has to be a mountain with two palm trees, and the ocean has to break here with this much sand. And you'd have to go drive around thousands of miles to find that exact thing, then take pictures mm. and FedEx it back down to L.A., then they would decide. <laughs> so I didn't have a car. Um, <laughs> so that was a little bit of a problem. And, and so one of your gigs, I remember, was that out of the trestle, right? Out here. Yeah, RSA, of- Ridley Scott and Associates. So Tony Scott, um, Ridley Scott. They owned yep. a commercial production company separately right. that made television commercials. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick up the story, but I, need to, I'm, I have a million questions for you. I'm going to take a student's question. I saw that you have like a multiplier effect on people where you um, let them uh, give them like the best work that they could possibly do. Is that something that comes naturally in the workplace, or is there certain practices that you do? So, so first of all, I haven't, I never, I've actually embarrassed to say that I've never looked at my LinkedIn recommendations. But um, I need to go do that like right away. <laughs> um, but thank you for, for letting me know. And that's really kind of somebody to say that about me. That's <laughs> uh, um, um, a great question. It's, a, it's like the, one of the most difficult, um, not being patronizing. That's actually a really hard question for me to answer, whether it comes naturally or not. Um, I want people to like me. So when people work for me, I want to figure out what it is about them that we're going to get along about. And it's usually the thing that they're good at and the thing that they like to do. Those are the things where we can like overlap. And so once I figure out what that is, then I want to, I'm a, I'm a, um, I consider myself like a strength finder manager. So I, everybody has weaknesses. So I don't focus on trying to fix your weaknesses as a manager and like go spend time in purgatory like because, you know, you bite your nails or whatever. <laughs> like don't, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, you're amazing with client engagement and people love you when you tell them bad news. Go, let's go double down on that. So I think that might be where that's coming from and that's my approach. I, I'm not sure that that's a natural thing, but it definitely is part of my personality driven by my desire for people to like me. Yeah. I would say this. I mean, I know you fairly well. I think that's a talent you have for sure, like a natural, a natural talent. Thanks. You're very intuitive, very empathetic. Um, so getting back to the location scouting job without a car, then you leverage that into a major motion picture studio. <laughs> uh, roughly, right? And yeah. just, we got to fast forward a little bit. Yeah. Um, but I want to hear, I want the students to hear the story about how that came about. So you have zero money. Yet you had this dream along with your partner to yeah. create a major motion picture studio, and you do it. So how did that happen? Yeah, there were two times in my life when I was f- completely flat broke. One of them was when I got back from... T- I lived in t- Kentucky for two years, went to Taiwan for a year, and got back. No money. Right. No money. And then the other time was a few years, like four years after that or three years after that. And um, there was a guy who was a location manager. He ran a location management company. So he had like libraries of photos and 
he and I met through an association meeting, and um, he was in L.A., and he invited me to come down and work for him. He had just landed this enormous facility. If you've ever seen, like, silver, like, they're in James Bond movies, like, silver briefcases. They look kind of like these cool kind of silver briefcases. They're called Zero. The name of the company is called Zero that makes them. They used to stamp these things out in this factory in Burbank, and the factory moved to Utah, and they had this empty, huge facilities. Uh, Half a mile long, 300,000 square feet half of... Half a mile long. Half a mile. Wow. And then a four-story office building, and it was completely vacant, tumbleweeds. They had, like, a security guard to make sure, like, their people didn't destroy the place. Um, it was at the five free, corner of the 5 Freeway in Burbank Boulevard near Ikea at the time. And it was, like, this desolate thing. And I went down there, and he's like, yeah, we're going to turn this into a stage facility and, like, start making feature films here. Do you want to do that? And you said, great, what's our budget? I said, great. Yeah, I said, great. What's our budget? And, and then he said, uh, zero. No budget. We've got to figure this out. So how did you pay the rent? Well, the good news, we didn't have to pay rent because the contract we had with the, the company that had owned this building was that we would get 30% of any of the money that was made on this lot. So rather than take that conventional approach, uh, these gentlemen walked up and said, hey, by the way, we don't have any money for security deposit first and last month. But good news, we'll pay you 70% of all the profit we're going to make at your building. That's right. And they bought it. They did. They did. Because it was, they were losing money on it. It was just empty. Yeah. No, but you guys don't sell yourself short. I mean, yes, they were losing money in the building, but they wouldn't have done that for just anybody. There's I no mean, way. There they would have had to be some credibility. Correct. There, there was. So, yeah. so, so talk about how you started. So now it's, go, it's game time. You're like, oh, great. Now we have the building. Now what? Day one. Yeah, day one. How did, well, you had zero marketing. How did you get the... Well, first you had to connect the phones yourself because you couldn't afford a phone company. Yeah, yeah. so this is pre-cell phone and stuff, right? So it, we, it turns out you can get a phone line hooked up. You can still do it. You can get a phone line hooked up and you don't have to pay money up front. They bill you in arrears. So you call <laughs> 30 up, days. Yeah, 30 days. So we got three lines hooked up. Uh, with and the, the clock's ticking. You have 30 days to pay that bill. 30 days, Right. Well, 30 days before the bill comes, then you have another... There you go. Yeah. And then you make a phone call, get an extra 15. Um, <laughs> so this is my life in 1994. Um, so it's December of 1994. We have no budget for anything, and we need to tell people that there's a movie studio here. So I find a 4 by 8 sheet of plywood. I find old cans of paint. I find a sponge. And I paint the plywood white. I wait for it to dry. And then I, with a sponge, I write film here, and then the phone number that we're not paying for yet. <laughs> and then I get a rope and drag it up to the top of the building, and there was a C.B. Ellis, C.B. Richard Ellis, what they used to be called, uh, real estate company, commercial real estate. They're, the building was for sale. And they had this huge thing on the building like so that everyone that went down the 5 freeway, southbound on the 5, could see that this place was for sale. And so we just put our sign in front of that. Not for sale. <laughs> We put our sign in front of that and waited for C.B. Richard Ellis to call. Um, but in the meantime, the phone just started ringing. So. But see, that's also very risk, um, taking a lot of risk, because they're in a building that could be sold at any minute, yeah. yet you're building this studio and investing in it, and it could have gotten sold out from under you. That's right. So the phone started ringing immediately. You, mm-hmm. knew, there was, you knew there was a market for it. There was, there was movies that weren't getting shot in L.A. because there wasn't studio space. That's right. So you knew that if you could, if you could pull off all these impossible things, the phone would start ringing. So, right. so walk us through sort of that, that, that success, some of the movies you made, some of the people you met, and then we'll talk about some of the things you spun off of all that. Yeah. So Hollywood is, is totally out of control. It's, it's one of the craziest businesses I've ever encountered in my life, and um, it's outrageous. And um, 
But w- what we did is we said we're going we're gonna to cater to a particular market, which is at the time there were the big five studios, and they would be the state. They all have stages. So Warner Brothers, when you watch a Warner Brothers movie, at the beginning you see all those stage facilities with their logo. Those were all booked, and same with Universal and Disney. And at the time it was um, TriStar, Sony Pictures bought TriStar. Um, so we we said we're going to go to overflow. So when a, when a feature film wants to get made but they can't get onto the lot, they need to go somewhere. So we're going to be the somewhere that they go so they can shoot their... They can start now instead of waiting three months for a stage to become available. Mm-hmm. So one of our first movies was a, a buddy movie with Adam Sandler and Damon Wayans called Bulletproof. Mm. Um, they're two... Like, they're cops and the shenanigans began or whatever. They're <laughs> right. handcuffed together. Right. And they, Let me guess. They didn't like each other. Oh, my gosh. It's wow. amazing. You're like... Us. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we did that. Um, I'm going to go to another student's question, and we'll get back to the studio. All right. Hi, my question's also regarding your more recent work in your career. How do you handle the new trend toward con- custom advertisement while still protecting consumer privacy? Awesome question. That's a great question. Um, the, the company that I, I work for right now, Media.net, is built around contextual advertising. So with no cookie data and no other user data, Specific, like PII, personally identifiable information, is what the industry calls it. So, give us some examples of contextual ads. Uh, uh, an article about travel to Costa Rica, Rica would be an example of that. Mm-hmm. So, our systems read the article, not the user. And then we go, wow, this is an article about travel to Costa Rica. Like, we should run some cool ads about vacations or cheap flights or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. Rental cars, et cetera. Right. That's right. Yeah, so you're not focusing on the person, right? Correct. So, you don't have a anonymous in quotes that's right which seems to never be anonymous anonymous um, person you're looking at the content that's right but but we also have the capability to do like it's a spectrum right so over here is where we built the company and why where most of what it does is what I just said contextual but we also have the capability to go all the way in like in ways where it's so far that we purposely dial it back because it freaks people out so um, but we believe in user control so we always have a path from the ad to, for the person to interact with the ad in a way that uh, blocks them or opts them out of that. Um, but we're B2B, and we service publishers. So we service the New York Times. So we, allow, we basically draft behind the New York Times privacy policies and what the New York Times wants to do because it's actually their users that are coming to that site. Um, but we do provide a lot of technology for users to control how we serve ads. So you can basically flip the switches to match what we that could. publisher wants. That's right. Okay. So it's funny. I'm, uh, Kevin O'Connor, you know, we both know him yeah. pretty well, founded DoubleClick. Mm-hmm. And he was, the, he was on the front page of the New York Times for too many days as the evil face of the Internet mm-hmm. back in 2000, 2001. Mm-hmm. And what they were doing back then was nothing. I mean, literally, it was like right. maybe a cookie that said somebody visited this website once. Right. Um, do you think that that trend's going to continue where mm-hmm. we were outraged by that then and now we're, we're, we're outraged by things now, but they're so much more egregious than a small cookie? Do you think that's just going to continue, mm-hmm. that yeah. eventually we're going to stop being outraged? Or? Yeah, it's hard. Yes, we will, because human nature, so it's very, it takes a lot of energy to be outraged, <laughs> and people are naturally low, like want to have low energy environments in their right. lives. Um, so people give up after a while, they get, or they forget or they get sensitive, they get desensitized. So the outrage has like a half-life. And then there are companies that make huge amounts of money in the meantime. Right. So they're motivated to keep outraging us. And uh, so, yeah, it's going to keep happening. 
Okay. And it's not just going to be in ads. It's going to be in all kinds of, it already is, in all of our lives, everywhere. Right. Sad but true. And I think this generation, I think what they, what they would consider an intrusion of privacy is very different from what maybe oh, yeah. totally. what somebody of <laughs> my age would. Absolutely. So let's go back. The studio, you're meeting all these wonderful, good people that are also celebrities. Right. Uh, and you're making millions, but you told me at one point that you're also spending millions. So you're uh-huh. making a lot of money, and you're uh-huh. spending a lot of money. Uh-huh. Um, one of the things you spent money on was a business back in 1994. So think about this. This is 1994. The Internet is a thing, but it's really, really new for consumers. Um, and you created Hollywired. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about the impetus for Hollywired. And then how did that how did that business and oh sorry, I also want to point out who built the website and how and how did you decide on who built that website? Wow John, thanks for asking me that question. I really appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> um, we were remember the studio, I talked about the location services and the guy that I partnered with for the studio. So he still had his location business in this studio environment and everything was in file folders and it was like five by seven photos, like prints. And all taped with scotch tape to the inside of folders and were FedExing them back and forth to studios. And so he got tired of that. Yep. So he started scanning them and putting them on CD-ROMs. And so then he would mail the CD-ROM, right? And then, um, and then this web thing came along, and, he's, and we were all like, wow, we should just, why would we pay all this postage when we can just put these images somehow, we had no idea how, <laughs> on a computer, and then people would go there and see them and could search for them and stuff like that. So we looked at each other, and we're like, that's a great idea, but who's going to do it? because right, we're running a movie studio and this other stuff. So uh, one person had to be the business side and one person had to be the technical side. And both of us didn't want to be the technical <laughs> side. <laughs> and uh, the building we were in was this old corporate headquarters of this Zero company that made these. So from the 70s, it had like pea green shag carpet. And I'll never forget, it's another moment like the rearview mirror of my VW, when the quarter that we flipped to figure out heads or tails of who's going to do the landed on the green shag carpet, and I looked at it and realized I had to do the tech. Um, so, and you knew nothing about building... Well, nobody knew anything about building web pages back then. I, I, was type, I, was, I was typing like this back then. That was how I typed, literally how I typed. So you just got a book on web dev and just started... How did you do it? I didn't, there was no book. So it's 94. Linda hadn't no, written her book like, yet? Like internet, HTML for dummies didn't come out for like two more years. Yeah. So there was no book. There was no book. There was no... ISP, there was like, you had to hunt for, it was insane. It was like the idea that we were going to somehow do this. I didn't know what a server was. I didn't know what an operating system was. We ended up accidentally finding out about a company called Sun Microsystems. I went over to their headquarters, or their LA headquarters in Encino, and I like somehow convinced this guy that we were going to build this amazing B2B website for film and television business, and we just wanted to demo one of their little like demo computers. So he gave me their least expensive Unix computer, and then I got back to the office and didn't know what Unix was, and then had to figure that out. So I turned the computer on, it wasn't connected to a network, and it constantly, endlessly said, I can't find the network, where's the network, there's no network, I'm missing the network, plug in the network, like that was what it said to me. <laughs> so I went from there to 16,000 websites in four years, wow. and uh, it was the largest B2B uh, search engine for film and television professionals from 94 to 98. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, and you never stop, so you, you, you always have these little side hustles going on. So part of that Hollywood time, you did this three-week stint of sponsoring parties, <laughs> and you made about $130,000 in three weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What? 
first off, what spawned that, and why didn't you do four weeks? Uh, payroll. We had to make payroll. So this is a night summer oh, of 95. that was a payroll? You, oh, yeah. Wow. It, was, okay. it was a business. To, yeah, so Got it. we had the, all this stuff we were investing in. We, we had a business called Crowds Are Us, which was cardboard cutouts of people that instead of hiring extras to fill stadiums, <laughs> you would get, you'd put cardboard people in the this seats, like right here. How many of you are cardboard people? <laughs> so every Jean-Claude Van Damme movie in like from 90-something to 90-something has, has a nuclear bomb going off in a stadium at the end, and, and it's, the stadium is filled with our car. So we would do 50 cardboard, and then one real person would get up and get popcorn and come back. So as the camera went by, like you didn't know, and it was pre-CGI, but... But to print off that many, with like 20,000 cards, it costs money. So, you know, we're trying to make payroll. We're starting all these businesses. We have these ideas, Hollywired, the whole thing. So my business partner knew the woman that uh, discovered The Doors. And she had made a lot of money, like, in early days of the band The Doors, like, managing them. And then she used that money smartly to buy this house on a hilltop in Beverly Hills that had a 360-degree view of all of L.A., the valley, the beach, the ocean, everything. And Sly Stone was renting it from her at the time. And this is Sly and the Family Stone. Awesome. I have them on my we Spotify. love that music. Just yeah. listen to it, yeah. Everyday people and all that stuff. And he was in there, but unfortunately in a lot of disarray and distress. Right. And wouldn't leave. That He wouldn't pay rent and he wouldn't leave. And he painted the inside of all the windows black. So my business partner told this woman... Uh, hey, I want to rent your place. And she's like, well, you could rent it, and it's 4000 a month to rent, but Sly's in there, and he won't leave. <laughs> so if you can get Sly out, I'll give you the first month free. Oh, nice. So I wasn't there when Sly left the building, but um, we cleaned it up, and next thing I know, it's uh, <laughs> got another business. So that, you run that for three weekends, you make enough money to pay payroll, and you, yeah. it was a three-way split, right? So you split about 140 grand three ways or something like we that. We were partners with, uh, we had two partners. One was Aaron Spelling's uh, son. So if you ever watched Beverly Hills 90210, have ever heard of that? That's Aaron Spelling. The Love Boat was Aaron Spelling. Aaron Spelling's like a famous, he passed yeah. away, but he's a famous Holly, uh, television producer. Right. His son was one of our partners. And his job was to go out to all the clubs in Hollywood with um, after-party flyers. There was he was no- marketing. He was marketing, and there was no, again, there was no, I know it's crazy to think about it, but there's no, like, you couldn't detect group text people or whatever. So he was handing out paper, and then our other partner was Herbie Hancock's, like, really good friend was our other partner. Right. Okay. So the same time period, a little bit later, you, I just thought this was curious. So help me with the context of this. You end up finding out that the state of California has money available if you retrain people. And so you decided, you submitted a grant to, yeah. to help train people to become webmasters. That's right. Was that just a little one-off thing, or what was that? I found out that you could hire salespeople on 100% commission. I didn't know you could do that. So I found this guy named Stan. We called him Stan the Man. And he was like from a 70s B-movie. He came in with like a corduroy vest with like, you know himself like, in between the vest or whatever and then oh, he had like a huge gold chain and big beard he'd get back in the corner and he, the guy could close like he would cold call every business in Hollywood so suddenly we're, this demand comes in for websites and we don't have except me we don't have, oh, we don't have so that's people why. to build websites so then um, uh, 
I can't remember. I actually cannot remember how we found out. But one half of 1% of all your paychecks in California, all of our paychecks in California, go to something called the Employment Development Department Retraining Fund. And so there was this pot of money that California has to take people and retrain them from one industry to another. So if you're in an industry that's going down, they retrain you to something that's going up. So at the time, it was post-fall of the Soviet Union. Clinton was shutting down military bases uh, because we just didn't need that much military. Right. And there were a lot of aerospace engineers and technologists that were getting laid off in L.A. And so we connected the dots. We wrote a grant. Um, I co-wrote a grant with someone who knows how to write grants. We found someone who knows how to write grants. There's people that work for commission on grants. So they'll take like 15% of your grant, Mm. and they'll help you write it. So we worked together on that, and then we submitted it, and we got a grant for $98,500 to train 16 aerospace engineers. These are like Tomahawk missile sidewinder guys from TRW uh, to become webmasters and like code HTML and JavaScript. So you probably, I mean, joking aside, you probably changed some lives there. We did. There's two of them went on to have really successful careers, and I hired one 10 years later, and he's still at the company that, I'm not there anymore, but he is at the company that I That's awesome. Mm -hmm. So, but again, very entrepreneurial. You guys are hearing some themes here. Rather than write a check to somebody and hope for the best, you take the approach that I often would take is, hey, we're in this together. Like, if it succeeds, you're going to make twice as much as you would if I just wrote you a check. Right. So you don't want a check, right? You want twice as much. That's right. And so you would get people to take commission for the grant. You took the, right. the landlord to take a 70% cut of your mm-hmm. revenue. Yep. Um, and looking for government money is brilliant. Mm-hmm. It's free. It's yeah, out it's there. there. You might as well get it. It's there for a reason. It's not always there for the reason we like, but it's there for a reason. And this was one of those examples where it was actually there for the right reason, mm-hmm. and we were totally aligned. It was like win, 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 win right. for everybody. Right, right. Yeah. right. And I, that's, a, that's interesting because I was wondering why you did that, but it's because you needed more websites built. Yeah. That was a awesome. lot of websites. <laughs> 16,000. So you, you've always been so super entrepreneurial, as everyone can tell by now. Um, and what I found really surprising, because I do know, you know a lot of entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. is even when you had very demanding uh, jobs as an executive, for most of that time, you had a you owned a business, your own business, kind of outside of that. So I know you bought and sold a fabrication company. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure your wife was thrilled with that. Yeah. <laughs> what 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 do you think is driving that? Like what? Um, that's another hard question to answer. I'm going to call it luck. I've thought about it a lot. I'm going to call it luck. I was born with a feature of my personality that if I'm comfortable, I'm freaked out. Like if I, if something's too easy for me, it, I can't. I'm out of my mind about it. So having a bit, having, working for a company like Yahoo you know, can be like one of the most soul-crushing, <laughs> like fire, burp, go away, tiny ember left in your experience ever. And that's for any large company, by the way. But does it, I mean, I would imagine it doesn't feel like, like other people would look at that and say, wait a minute, your discretionary downtime, you're spinning doing that? Mm-hmm. They would look at it as a burden mm-hmm. um, or punishment. You're looking at it like, hey, no, that was my... That was my downtime. Like, that was my chance to have fun. I like hard work. I like working hard. Yeah. yeah, and it's fun to have. I mean, I would encourage all the young people, get as many pit, plates spinning as you can within reason um, and keep your studies up. But it's, but it's fun to see, kind of get all these things going, and you get to yeah. go back and forth between them and um, try, to, try to keep Win- the plates from falling. Oprah, absolutely. Oprah Winfrey, I think she, I'm going to get it wrong, but she says... Uh, she doesn't believe in luck. She believes in being prepared for opportunity. Right. And the more opportunities you have in your life, like lucky John says, within are. reason, yeah, you're going to be, you're going to get super lucky, quote unquote. You know, you're going to, you're going to run into just an incredible 
set of options that you would never have had if you hadn't done that. So you, you've said before you look for operational discipline, yeah. uh, revenue, and product value. If it's yes. a partnership, obviously. And then the one I really want to spend the most time in is ideation. Please just describe that. So what happens when I sit down with you and I say, hey, Josh, I think I'm really good at ideation. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how, do you make, how do you test me on that? So with website optimization, it's all about revenue. Like how can I make more revenue with my website? That's what most people who own websites want to do is they want to make money yeah. with their website. So we would, put, we would project websites on a screen and uh, in a regular meeting with all the lights on and everything like that. And people are sitting around and, and it, sitting around a table. So some people, it's behind them. Some people, it's in front. And then I would say, what do you think we should do with this website? And everyone's distracted and, it, and they're thinking about other things. So I realized I needed to, ch- to get people to share their opinion in a structured way that's productive I needed to, uh, you were saying the word consecrate earlier, so I wanted to consecrate a space. So, uh, con- like, consecration in this means it's a time and place is suddenly changed. Something about the time and place changes. So, in, the, in my way of doing it, we shut all the lights off, and we got everybody on one side, and I told everybody not to talk for 10 minutes and stare at the website for 10 minutes and don't say anything. And people, the first couple of minutes, everyone's bored. Well, first few seconds, everyone's scared because they don't know what's going on. <laughs> Then people get bored. They're like, oh my gosh, well, I'm just staring at this website. But it turns out the brain won't let you be bored for very long. Nobody, like everybody in here, if you're, if you're bored for a while, it'll end. That's why we say you're bored for a while, because you, your brain will not let you be bored for an extended period of time. You'll figure out something to do. It's human nature. It's very fundamental. And so when people are staring at the website for five or ten minutes, suddenly... They start coming up with ideas and opinions and like points of view and what if we did this and what about that? So after 10 minutes, I start going around the room going, what did we, what did we do with this page? What, how could we make this better? How could we make more money with this? And man, the ideas just start, and really good ones too. And there's somebody who's assigned, and usually it's me, to start writing them down as fast as you can or type them down as fast as you can. And uh, we get you know, 30 to 50 ideas in a one-hour session, mm-hmm. ideation session, and the average increase of revenue within two months after that is somewhere around 22% increase of revenue. And so once I started realizing that this was, I could create a factory out of this and just keep doing it. Right. Uh, by the way, people love doing it. The people in the room love it. And then um, they see the results of their work really quickly. Once I figured out you can rinse and repeat on this, um, I started changing what I would say to people when they asked me what I do for a living. And so I was kind of snarky because I was really excited about what happened. And I, people say, what do you do for a living? I go, you know what I do for a living? I go, you give me a dollar and I'll give you a dollar twenty-two back in six months. Because I was so confident. It was such a repeatable process. Right. Um, and it works everywhere. It works everywhere. You, should write, you need to write a book. Write a book? All right. <laughs> Don't point at her. Uh, we'll take the next student's question. Hi, I was wondering, how did your management style change as you began to take on larger teams and offices? And was there anything early on in your career that helped shape the management style you use today? Another moment in time on this topic. Um, I used to hire people like me. I used to think it was the right thing to hire mini-me's. And so I'd hire a lot of Josh's. And it felt so comfortable because we were all the same and we could read each other's minds. And it was like I had this army of I did the same thing. Yeah, I was like, I'm just going to find copies of myself, and then it'll be like low friction, and we'll all get along. And then I realized that there's a, 
there's two problems with that. One is I have serious limitations. There's things I can't do. There's, there's talents other people have that I will never have. And that was one problem. And then the other one is I wasn't uh, living in the real world. The real world is not filled with Josh's. And so I said, you know what I need to do? I got an, I got an annual evaluation from my boss at the time, a woman who, um, she's a CMO of Yext now. Um, and she said, she was a really super blunt person. So she just said, you have a huge problem. And I said, what? She goes, you have mini-me's reporting to you. You, guys, you need to, and that's not good. And she's like, how, is it, how come it is that this guy hasn't been promoted? Mm-hmm. I said, oh, my gosh. Well, he's, he's perfection, and perfection is the enemy of progress, and he's, he's deliberative, and it takes forever for him to make a decision, and he doesn't command a room when there's a meeting with a client, and it's really hard for him to, like, step up and, you know, all these things. That, all the things you aren't. Correct. <laughs> and and I, as I'm saying this stuff to her, I'm thinking to myself, and she's staring at me like just laser eyes, and I was like, she's like she wants me to get it, right, you know? So, right, and I right. was like, wow. I was like, okay. So I actually, there was a promotion cycle, and I actually brought this guy up into my reporting directly to me, and it was like the single best thing I'd ever done as far as people management, ever. Because not only for him and for me and for the company, that all the benefits from that, but then I realized, oh, this works, and I can hire lots of non-Joshes, and it's awesome. Was that, so the, that boss, was that, um, was that Marissa? No, it was a woman named Wendy Sturgis. Okay. I want to talk about Marissa, for, if you don't mind, for a second. Mm-hmm. So um, Marissa Mayer ran Yahoo for years. Um, one of the most high-profile women executives, I would say, in the world, mm-hmm. certainly in the United States. Yeah. Um, I don't know her. I've never met her. Um, but I, just as an observer of, of, of the press, I felt at times that she was unfairly treated mm-hmm. and that she was, uh, you know, some of it was unconscious, I guess. Some of it wasn't. It was conscious. I would just wonder, and what I, what I mean by that is just um, if I gave a speech, it's very unlikely they would comment on my hair or my outfit. Marissa would give a speech or talk, and it was her shoes and her jewelry and her hairdo and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> did you guys feel inside at the time that that was unfair? Did she feel it was unfair? Like, what, what, did, did you guys just ignore it? Or? I did, and I don't have, like, some people have like Marissa God complex or whatever, like they look up to her in sycophantic way. I don't have that. But I, I think most of what was written about Marissa and her criticism of her had nothing to do with her actual faults, which mm. she does have, sure. like all people. That was not what people were writing about at all. Uh, Yahoo was on a trajectory that was almost impossible for anybody to change. And she did the best at decreasing the slope, the downward slope. Um, she did a great job of doing that. Um, but but yeah, and then the, she brought she she invited a lot of the superficial stuff mm-hmm. um, because she was doing that on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, but Marissa Mayer is uh, she's easily the smartest, most intelligent, most capable, most self-actualized human being I've ever met in my life. More than me. Uh, just a little bit. More than you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure she is. Is unbelievable. I was impressed by the, uh, the outside looking in, but yeah. So, talking about Yahoo and the trajectory by the time she joined, that it was on, she did the best she could do. If you could go back 15 years to when you joined, so you, you just to be clear, um, Josh joined Overture about a year later. It was acquired for one point something billion. So you came into Yahoo 15 years earlier. What? Is there anything that could have been done differently? And if so, what, what could have been done? Now that we have the hindsight. Put my wife in charge of the company, then what's it really what it turned around? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
What could have been done differently at Yahoo to turn it around? You'd have to fire everybody that says no. So in big companies, there's something called the tunnel of no. So when you graduate from here, you'll arrive at the tunnel of no very quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If you get a job at a big company. Um, It's uh, people who get a paycheck with no negative consequence um, for reducing risk to zero. So by saying no, you reduce risk to zero, and then your paycheck comes. The meeting's over, and then the paycheck comes. And there was a guy at Google, early on at Google, who's in charge of engineering. He actually lives in Santa Barbara, and he forbid anybody on his team to say no mm-hmm. unless it violated laws of physics. And he, <laughs> and he meant that seriously. And so it was always, someone would come up with a crazy idea, like, what if we, why don't we have a zoo at Google? You know, and then you were supposed to say yes, but then here's the consequences of that. So right. it was always yes. You first. clean up the poop, right? Exactly, right? Yes, here's the cost of that. Yes, here's why that will lose money or whatever. But it was always yes, and then what? How would we do that? And right. what would be the expected outcome? Rather than saying no, right? I always found that. So I worked with lawyers that took that approach. Most lawyers want to tell you no about everything. Can I do this? Nope. And I found lawyers. I had one for 17 years, I guess, and he would always say yes. But you'll go to jail, or yes, but. correct, correct. So, but I always like that approach of yeah, of course. But this is what you'll have to deal with if you do it. Yeah, I like that much better. We'll take the last student's question, and then I have one more. Hi there. Um, so I was wondering, all these stories, like it sounds like it's a combination of like luck and your own tenacity that's led to your success in your career. And I was just wondering, are there any? Have there been any disruptions, especially with the world changing so fast? Have there been have there been any uh, disruptions in your industry that have really caused you to kind of shift your viewpoint on how to handle certain situations, like? Has there been any just like major changes that you need to make in your line of work and how you delegate and use your leadership position? Uh, it's constant. It's all the time. So it feels like it's. I was about to answer no, but then it's just so happening so much that it's the answer is yes, but it feels like no because it's just normal. It's like the baseline is constant change and black swan events everywhere, and you know, tr- trash trucks metaphorically out of an alley at midnight, and you don't know it's coming and. You know, things can end very quickly and do all the time. So everyone's having to, like, the, word, the fancy word now is pivot. Yeah. Uh, but everyone's having to, like, figure it out over and over and over again constantly. Yeah, yeah we've gone from pivot to spin in circles. So, yeah. you, so you battled Google. You were one of the most successful, I would say, the most successful part of Yahoo for many years, battling Google every day. So you're now battling Google every day, essentially at media.net. Um, I, I wonder... With, with Fang, so with Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, um, what, do you th- what do you think this is going to take us? So you guys are one of the companies that are trying to make sure that they don't own everything in the world. What do you think in five or maybe seven years the landscape is going to look like? Is it going to be more consolidated with those companies online? Are we going to see entrants come in and take some business? You know, if you look at the history of the web, um, there's major disruptions happen all the time. So I would place a... F- 55, 65% bet that something like that will happen to Google or Facebook. Or I think that the cycles get longer. As, a, as an industry matures, the disruption mm-hmm. cycles get longer. Right? Early on, it was like, what was it, like Friendster, and then it went to something, to some, you know, MySpace, right. and right. then Facebook, right? Really quick. Right. But it, even from Friendster to MySpace was like a year, and then MySpace to Facebook was like three or four years, and then Facebook's been holding on by, by acquiring and doing a good job reinventing themselves. Right. Um, but I think there'll be something to, I would imagine 
Uh, I think another one is going to be actually us deciding what kind of experience we want to have and what kind of lives we want to lead uh, vis-a-vis surveillance and um, not getting paid for making other people a lot of money. Right. So it, it ads give you free content, and we don't want wealth, only wealthy people to get Google search results. So ads support Google's business. Well, that's good. But then there's a lot of stuff going on that's potentially abusive in a user a distortion way, like where you're just you're, you're, um, harnessing users way beyond the value of the content they're getting to make money and for yourself. Right, right. And I think users are going to start waking up and realizing like, hey, how come I'm not getting a little more of the action? Why am I not part of this economic ecosystem? If you're going to know everything about me and give me awesome ads, great. But like, where's my piece of that? So do you think puzzle? it'll be a new entrant that'll harness that? That'll come in and say, yeah. hey, you guys have been getting screwed. Mm-hmm. Here's the new model. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's interesting that the people that are supposed to be overseeing this for us mm-hmm. are 90 years old and yeah. they don't know what Twitter is. Right. You know, so you see Mark Zuckerberg up on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., and he's literally explaining to people, no, that's Twitter, not Facebook. Like right. they just, And they're supposed to be the gatekeepers on right. all this bad behavior. That's right. I hate to end on such a downer note. But it's going to get better because somebody's well, going to come in and they're going to... One upper note could be that we're all gatekeepers, so you can be your own gatekeeper. It's harder. It's harder, by the way. It takes more time, and you have to be conscious about it. And you'll lose out on some stuff. Because right now, the world's organized on the web to give you like awesome feeling if you participate in the system I just talked about. <laughs> so you have to be willing to make those sacrifices. But you can be your own gatekeeper and have that your own control. Right, right. Yeah. And, and I'm sure it will. I'm sure if it's not somebody in this room, it might be somebody watching around the world. Somebody's going to take advantage of what you know, Facebook and some of the other companies have done. Yeah. They've sort of painted themselves into a corner with their business model. Yeah. And I agree with you. I don't think it's sustainable in the, in the, long, in the long run. So I talk pub- publicly fairly often. And I travel about 150,000 miles a year, like way too much time in an aluminum tube. Um, and um, I spend a lot of time away from my house, as much as I, my kids are happy to see me when I come home. Um, and... You know, I just want to recognize that half of everything we're talking about right now is really due to my to my wife and the support that she provides me in every possible way. So, half of this interview is enabled by her presence. That's wonderful. Let's give her a hand. That's a, that is a wonderful note to end on. Anyone that, that has taken one of my classes um, knows my relationship with my wife, and I, and I absolutely owe more than half of anything that I've ever gotten to her. Um, and it's, you know, we're, we're blessed, and we're not, I don't, we're not yeah. sort of lording ourselves over other people. Uh, people's lives, you know, have all kinds of bumps in them. But we're certainly very, very happy and, and, and yeah. pleased that we, that we have that relationship. That's right. yeah. Thank you, Josh. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.